This is Pop Fiction Women. I'm Corinne. I'm Kate. And we're complicated. Blunt. Total boss. But sometimes a mess. Opinionated. But never boring. And in this podcast, we're discussing the complicated women of the best books, TV, and movies. Along with the complicated women behind the scenes. Warning, lots of spoilers ahead. So come back when you're done. Hurry up, it's starting. This episode is, are we calling it the unlikable female protagonist? Sure. <laughs> okay. Seems like what we're talking about. What? Well, we were, we were originally, as you know, you saw an article about villains, female villains. And I, that got us going a little bit. We had some back and forth on that. And then I found this article by Roxanne Gay from 2014 called Not Here to Make Friends on the importance of unlikable female protagonists. And it was funny because we, you had mentioned doing something like this, uh, similar to what we did for our love episodes. So sort of this in conversation type thing. So instead of talking about sort of what we love in love stories, this was about the unlikable female protagonists. And we've talked about this a lot. And in other episodes, of course, but she asked a question, why is likability even a question? Why are we so concerned with whether in fact or fiction someone is likable? And we've had a lot of conversations about whether this should even be a determining factor. Why, why should anyone even be talking about this? And I love, she said about herself, I'm often drawn to unlikable characters, to those who behave in socially unacceptable ways and say whatever is on their mind and do what they want with varying levels of regard for the consequences. I want characters to do bad things and get away with their misdeeds. I want characters to think ugly thoughts and make ugly decisions. I want characters to make mistakes and put themselves first without apologizing for it. And I was like, oh, do I want that? Like, <laughs> I, right? Like, I don't know. I was like, hmm, like, shit, that's a, I don't know. Like, when I go into things, like, do I want that? But then, you know, she was talking, and I think this is right. She said, perhaps unlikable characters, the ones who are the most human, are also the ones who are the most alive. Perhaps this intimacy makes us uncomfortable because we don't dare be so alive. And I thought, mm. oh, shit. I, maybe that is what the sort of issue people sometimes have with an unlikable character is it makes them think, you know, it sort of transports them into their darker parts of themselves. So you start to feel alive, but you're also a little scared of it, right? Like, right. oh shit, like, I, do I, am I? It, it's tapping into sort of maybe your areas that people don't want to get uncomfortable with. Right. And they and really don't like it when it's a woman. Right. And we have talked about, this. we talked about this a bit on the Glennon Doyle Untamed episode. Yeah. And at the end of it, you know, we sort of said, is the yeah. untamed woman, I, we love her call for all women to be untamed, but is it tolerable? And yeah. we're making strides, I think, but it's not clear. It is not clear. No. It's a big job, but I think something we're working on, right? For yes, ourselves no. and also yeah. for other people who possibly listen to this and think about it just a little bit different that's I think little bits of change are good right yeah that's how you definitely. get to the big stuff so yeah yeah and I will say I am someone who loves an unlikable character 
I just love those stories, period, full stop. So mm-hmm. it's so hard for me to say unlikable. And I understand that unlikable I mean by society, not by me, because I right. love these people. Right. <laughs> these right. Exactly. are my people. These are the people I love to to watch and listen to. But you're right. I think for most of society who are taught to stay in line and to play by the rules, it is unnerving to see someone who unapologetically does not even Glennon Doyle says it when she's looking at a 12 year old girl on a soccer field and she's saying this is my training kicking in my training tells me not to like her but if we're all wild and free then what she's doing is actually aspirational and it's it's a shift it takes a shift in perspective and and that's what we're doing yeah and then we will we will I also, they're, they're all different, unlike they are. Right? I mean, which, there's We're so talk many different ones, which we'll flavors. talk about. And, so many different yes, flavors. flavors. I loved in that Roxanne Gay piece that she said she was a little bit feral in high school, which you know is yes! one of my favorite words, I knew, too. I, I was I, hoping you'd pick up on that. I knew I you would. did. Of course. Yeah. I just love that word when yeah. it's just. When it's ascribed to a human, it's usually ascribed to animals. And I love it when it's ascribed to a human and done so with ownership, the way she did and the way I was talking about in in Untamed, which being untamed and being feral, I think are very different things. And I've had my own lessons to learn as a feral, but we'll, we'll <laughs> that's, that's for a different, that's outside of the scope of what we're talking about today. <laughs> okay. Part of what... I know drew me to this episode was how much I loved researching the big speeches of our love episode. So we wanted to have this episode in conversation with love, but with a very different tone. These are women not with hearts in their eyes, but with fire in their bellies Mm. or chips on their shoulders. And there are some good ones here. So we're going to dive into our first segment, which you have so brilliantly named Sticks and Stones, Villainous Speeches. (laughs) This episode, I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about these as much, but they exist for sure. They do exist. They are harder to come by. I think it's just hard. Even even in books that have great, unlikable female protagonists, they don't always deliver some sort of speech that you can um, talk about. Let's start with I Care A Lot. Oh, Because that is the most recent. It's so good. It is I did not love this movie. I liked it. I liked it a lot. There were a lot of Amy Dunn notes in Rosamund Pike's performance. Yes. And I loved that about it. That was probably, if it was someone else in this movie, I don't even know if I would have bothered watching it. I know. But the I chance know. to she, watch Rosamund her. Pike, oh, yeah. She uh, just won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama mm, for this. So deserved. And so deserved. You're right. There are, I have, several from this i mean we didn't just get i mean i'm not going to read every single one of them but this one does have several speeches but Um, the opening one yeah we should say since it is relatively new i if people haven't seen it but basically marla grayson that's who rosamund pike plays is a professional court appointed guardian for sort of elderly wards and she you know steals their assets or bilks them through (laughs) dubious legal means so that's the gist of the of it but this speech was in the trailer which you sent to me and Mm -hmm. holy shit I was like this is amazing but yes it does start the movie yes do you want me to read it yeah go for it so look at you sitting there 
You think you're good people. You're not good people. Trust me, there's no such thing as good people. I used to be like you, thinking that working hard and playing fair would lead to success and happiness. It doesn't. Playing fair is a joke invented by rich people to keep the rest of us poor. And I've been poor. It doesn't agree with me. Because there's two types of people in this world. The people who take and those getting took. Predators and prey. Lions and lambs. My name is Marla Grayson. And I'm not a lamb. I'm a fucking lioness. Oh my God. So good. Bam! Oh, the writing is so good. And Rosamund Pike and her delivery, her tone of voice. Oh my God, it's so good. It's so good. It's amazing. And of course, the Leo in me is just like, oh, fucking lioness. That's right. I'm like roaring over here and shit. But that is a great, great speech. It is. It is. Which brings me, I think, into our second one, which was... No matter how you feel about the movie Gone Girl, the cool girl diatribe is one that everyone loves. It speaks to them in some way or another. And it's it's a classic big speech for the Yeah, for the for the unlikable female protagonist. So I'm gonna read a little bit of that. That night at the Brooklyn party, I was playing the girl who was in style, the girl a man like Nick wants. The cool girl. Men always say that as the defining compliment, don't they? She's a cool girl. Being the cool girl means I'm hot, brilliant, funny woman who adores football, poker, dirty jokes, and burping, who plays video games, drinks cheap beer, loves threesome and anal sex, and jams hot dogs and hamburgers into her mouth like she's hosting the world's biggest culinary gangbang, while somehow maintaining a size two, because cool girls are above all hot. Hot and understanding. Cool girls never get angry. They only smile in a chagrined, loving manner and let their men do whatever they want. Go ahead, shit on me. I don't mind. I'm a cool girl. Men actually think this girl exists. Maybe they're fooled because so many women are willing to pretend to be this girl. For a long time, cool girl offended me. I used to see men, friends, coworkers, strangers, giddy over these awful pretender women, and I'd want to sit these men down and calmly say, you are not dating a woman. You are dating a woman who has watched too many movies written by socially awkward men who'd like to believe that this kind of woman exists and might kiss them. And the cool girls are even more pathetic. They're not even pretending to be the woman they want to be. They're pretending to be the woman a man wants them to be. And if you're not a cool girl, I beg you to not believe your man doesn't want the cool girl. It may be a slightly different version. Maybe he's a vegetarian, so cool girl loves sateen (laughs) and it's great with dogs. Or maybe he's a hipster artist, so cool girl is a tattooed, bespeckled nerd who loves comics. There are variations to the window dressing, but believe me, he wants cool girl, who is basically the girl who likes every fucking thing he likes and doesn't ever complain. I waited patiently years for the pendulum to swing in the other way for men to start reading Jane Austen learn how to knit pretend to love cosmos organize scrapbook parties and make out with each other while we leer and then we'd say yeah he's a cool guy but it never happened instead women across the nation colluded in our degradation pretty soon cool girl became the standard girl Men believed she existed. She wasn't just a dream girl, one in a million. Every girl was supposed to be this girl. And if you weren't, 
then there was something wrong with you. Oh, God. Yeah. So that's the, the version in the book, which is slightly different from the one in the movie. So brilliant. Colluded in our degradation. Oh, oh my gosh. I know. I know. And, and how and, Cool Girl has different window dressing. But they're, yes, all, exactly. they're all the same. The, the and speckled the same. nerd, the, the, yeah. the vegetarian, they're all and, the same. And it all, all boils down to being the woman Who that he want. wants you to be. Yes. Right. Oh. Love and it. why have they never you're right she's waited for the pendulum to come back why has this never happened why aren't they reading right. Jane Austen and <laughs> trying to do what pretend to be like us so we can be like oh he's the cool guy nope wow mm-hmm. I love that that is such a classic I and know yeah. Gillian Flynn she's really the one in my mind who who brought the unlikable female protagonist into she gets the credit deservingly so speaking of classics i mean that are just sort of in in the lexicon is the cerulean cerulean blue speech speech that miranda Priestley gives in the devil wears prada i mean a a very unlikable female ironclad boss lady played so brilliantly by meryl streep but this speech i just I, i just think this is just the epitome of just a badass so she says, <laughs> everyone knows that Andy is, uh, you know, made a stupid comment basically about, you know, like basically what's the big deal? Like, I don't understand all this like fashion stuff. Right. So <laughs> even though she's working at, I think, as you pointed out at the time, then know where you are and know your audience lady because mm. you're working at a fashion magazine. So she says this stuff. Oh, OK. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. And you're absolutely, oh, and you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it? who showed Cerulean military jackets. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you, no doubt, fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Bam. Yeah. She puts her in her place. Yeah. And you know that the idea that fashion is everything is I, I think if it was brought to 2021 where we are now, it's people having the realization that politics, everything, you know, some people like to say, oh, I'm not political. Literally everything is politics. And so yes. that would be the same. I can imagine that same speech right now being something about, you know, your political awareness. But in that, she just debunks the idea that you don't care. You think you're above this. And meanwhile, it is the fabric of everything and every choice and it's just made for you and you don't even know it. Exactly. Oh, so good. So good. Fantastic. I love that one. I know. She's so good. So I have another one that's new. 
one we haven't mm-hmm. talked about before, but we really, I don't know why, it hasn't even been on our list really. One of my favorites is Claire Massoud's The Woman Upstairs. And I can remember picking up this book and I had very little children and I was like spoiling myself reading a book and getting a pedicure. And I hope I had no idea what the book was about. I picked it up and it got me right away. And you'll you'll hear why. So this is very first pages of Nora from Claire Massoud's The Woman Upstairs. How angry am I? You don't want to know. Nobody wants to know about that. I'm a good girl, a nice girl. I'm a straight A, straight-laced, good daughter, good career girl. I never stole anybody's boyfriend, and I never ran out on a girlfriend, and I put up with my parents' shit and my brother's shit, and I'm not a girl anyhow. I'm over 40 fucking years old, and I'm good at my job, and I'm great with kids, and I held my mother's hand when she died, and I speak to my father every day on the telephone, every day, mind you. And what kind of weather do you have on your side of the river? Because it's pretty gray and muggy here. It's supposed to say great artist on my tombstone, but if I died right now, it would say such a good teacher slash daughter slash friend. Instead, what I really want to shout and what want in big letters on this grave too is fuck you all. Don't all women feel the same? The only difference is how much you know we feel it. How in touch we are with our fury. We're all furies, except the ones who are too damned foolish. And my worry now is we're all brainwashing them from the cradle. And in the end, even the ones who are smart will be too damned foolish. What do I mean? I mean the second graders at Appleton Elementary, sometimes the first graders even. And by the time they get to my classroom, to the third grade, they're well and truly gone. They're full of Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and French manicures and cute outfits and how their hair looks. In the third grade, they care more about their hair or their shoes than galaxies or caterpillars or hieroglyphics. How did all that revolutionary talk of the 70s land us in a place where being female means playing dumb and looking good? Even worse on your tombstone than dutiful daughter is looked good. Everyone used to know that, but we're lost in a world of appearances now. That's why I'm so angry, really, because of all the chores and all the making nice and all the duty of being a woman, or rather of being me, because maybe these are the burdens of being human. Really, I'm angry because I've tried so hard to get out of this hall of mirrors, this sham and pretend of the world, or of my world, on the east coast of the United States of America in the first decade of the 21st century. But behind every mirror is another fucking mirror, and down every corridor is another corridor. And the funhouse isn't fun anymore, and it's not funny, but there doesn't seem to be a door marked exit. I've finally come to understand that life itself is the funhouse. All you want is that to find that door marked as exit, the escape to a place where real life will be, and you can never find it. No, let me correct that. In recent years, there was a door. There were doors, and I took them, and I believed in them, and I believed for a stretch that I'd managed to get out into reality. And God, the bliss and terror of that, the intensity of that, it felt so different until suddenly I realized I'd been stuck in the funhouse all along. I'd been tricked. The door marked exit hadn't been an exit at all. Oh, yeah. Corinne. I know. Wait, do I need to read this book? Because, <laughs> I mean, I've heard that it's fantastic, but 
the you've just hit one of what's your what's your theme heather what's my damage anger which is the unlikable woman who's motivated by anger or whose defining characteristic maybe is anger but this yeah. sounds like she is well, speaking to well, it well then let me read a little bit more from another it's the same first chapter but right. she wants to tell you she's not an underground woman Harboring resentment for my miseries against the whole world. Aren't we unacknowledged and unadmired and unthanked? Numerous in our 20s and 30s were positively legion in our 40s and 50s. But the world should understand if the world gave a shit that women like us are not underground. No, we're the quiet women at the end of the third floor hallway whose trash is always tidy, who smiles brightly in the stairwell with a cheerful greeting and who from behind closed doors never makes a sound. In our lives, quiet desperation, the woman, the woman upstairs is who we are, with or without a goddamn tabby or a pesky lolloping Labrador, and not a soul registers that we are furious. We're completely invincible. I thought it wasn't true, or at least not true of me, but I've learned I'm no different at all. The question now is how to work it, how to use that invisibility, how to make it burn. Oh my God. Yeah. We are literally everywhere and you refuse to acknowledge us. And invisible at the same time. We're everywhere and invisible. Oh my gosh, but we're fucking furious. Fucking furious. I mean, I, this is, I, like I said, I really, I don't, I, this is so relatable to me, but I didn't have a great example other than Jen, who we've already talked about and, and, you know, but wow, okay, this one hits me. <laughs> I've talked about this a lot about feeling, which I think is what she was trying to say at the beginning of having sort of done everything quote unquote right in your life and, and right? And doing the things you're supposed to do and checking all the boxes and, and you did all that and you kind of got sold a bill of goods. Like, what the fuck? I did everything I was supposed to do. Like, why am I so angry? What? Yeah. This is, if, like, I've this been is, duped. Yeah. Where is my entry into the real world, into <laughs> right, right. reality with a capital R? Instead, I'm just, I'm it's in a another mirror. House. Yeah, there's another mirror. Yes. And the door said exit and it was bullshit. Well, I had one more because I can't, I can't leave without talking about Ani Finelli. I can't, uh, our From Luckiest Girl Alive. I love this part. I want to read that it comes in the beginning and, well, about eight, page 87. So, you know, close to the beginning. And at this point, all you know about Ani is that, you know, she it seems like a bit of a social climber. She wants to be thin. She's dressed perfect. She's nabbed the, the rich husband. And we don't really know her backstory yet. And yeah, so at, at this point, She's out to dinner with her fiance, Luke, and with her old teacher. And she, this is, you know, she's, she's great at these dinners, right? This is what she does. But she, she gets there and it says, Luke raised his glass. Lovely. What a gross word. I used to love these dinners. Used to love working for the wives' approval. What an accomplishment it was when it finally blasted across their faces. Now I was just bored 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 is this what i'm killing myself for is this what i really thought would fulfill me 27 dollar roast chicken and a fiance who sweetly fucks me when we get home and then the they ask where they're going to get married the other couple and she says nantucket and she's like why why get married in nantucket and her answer is 
well, she says this right. in her head. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I was like, in her head. Because of the privilege inherent in the location, Whitney, because Nantucket transcends all classes, all areas of the country. Go to South Dakota and tell some sad, smug housewife you grew up who grew up on the main line. And she doesn't know who she's supposed to be impressed. Tell her you summer on Nantucket. Be sure to verb it like that. And she knew knows who the fuck she's dealing with. That's why, Whitney. I'm like, damn. And that I remember at the time. Again, you don't know the backstory yet. And the first time I was just like, Jesus Christ. But just the tone and the mm-hmm. writing there yeah. too. That she's mm-hmm. so good at snark. Yes. But like a witty snark. Like, I mean, it's really, it runs throughout the book. But that's sort of always been like my favorite example of it. Yes. I love that. So should we move into what's your theme? Oh, yeah. What's your theme, Heather? Yeah. So we have been digging into what we particularly care for. What flavor you prefer? What's your favorite? Or what themes do you find yourself gravitating to? So I had said in our Lori Flynn interview that we unpack the unlikable female protagonist to expose it as nothing more than women defying convention and expectation. But as we've just discussed, there are some women that defy expectation and convention in ways that we root for and others where we kind of shake our heads in disappointment or say, I just don't get it. I don't relate. And that's what we're looking to explore today. And I thought before we got into each of ours, I'd read, it's not, I mean, it could have qualified as a big speech, but I just love this little bit from The Lightness by Emily Temple. And it kind of talks about the different kinds of girls that we're talking about. And also the surprise at the end that she isn't one of them, but but she sees all, all of these girls. So she is going to a, a retreat for, for young women, and she says she knows that the, the girls at the center were trouble. I knew that going in. They were slick Finnish girls, cat-eyed girls, hot-blood girls. They were girls who reveled. They were girls who liked boys and back seats, who slid things that weren't theirs into their tight pockets who lit fires and did donuts in the high school parking lot. They were girl who, girls who left marks. They were girls who snuck. They were girls who drank whiskey and worse by the waterfront, looking out at the smeared reflections of the streetlights, making plans instead of wishes. They were girls who ran away, who inked their own arms with needles and ball, ball, ballpoint pens, who got things pierced below the neck. Below the neck, ladies. Can you believe it? Only whores, etc., etc., as my mother never tired of telling me. They pierced, too, these girls, and hit, and were sent out of gym class for raising bruises on the girls whose daddies brought them to school in Porsches, though some of their daddies had Porsches, too. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. They had their problems. They had their demands. They were shoplifters and potheads, arsonists and bullies, boy crazy and girl crazy, split and scarred. They were, some of them, cruel. They were, more of them, angry. Angry at their parents, at their schools, at their congressmen, at their bodies, at the painted white lines they saw everywhere, telling them no, 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 when they wanted yes. They were girls who were bored, so bored. Or they were girls who were the opposite, who were so full up of feeling that they couldn't simply do their times table or learn their French conjugations or go to the movies on a Saturday night and discuss the relative cuteness of so-and-so's haircut and let the age-appropriate boy next to them drag his sweaty palm around and around and around their pretty knees. 
They were too full up for that. They were too full up for caution. So they were girls who got caught. And at the end, she at the end of this little paragraph, she says, I was not one of them, of course, not yet. And that bring, mm. pretty much brings <laughs> you into the book and, and what unfolds. Right. But I just think it really captures this idea that there's something else that makes people, especially women, even girls, unlikable or unrelatable. And it's never one thing. So, it's so let's exactly. talk. Yeah. So well, I was just going to say what I realized even before I get into, well, true, I should say my themes, which were ambition, anger, and love. But even before we talk about those, what I realized when I was making this list is I relate so much to these types of unlikable women that to me, they aren't even unlikable. Right. They're, yeah. they're just relatable. They're just yeah. like me. So yeah. I thought, whoa, this is exactly, maybe this should have been fucking obvious, but mm -hmm. that's exactly the point of all the criticism about assessing a character in these terms. Because right. it's, what, it's what so is unlikable? Subjective. It's so it's subjective. subjective. It's not the same for everyone. So nope. This is why when people say you shouldn't, we shouldn't judge characters that way because what, what my likes or what I'm drawn to reveals say so much about me, but it might not say the same for you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm picking these, these qualities, which we'll talk about, but then I thought, but I like these people. I yeah. mean, they're actually, and that's the whole point. They're, yeah, they're, that is. they're not unlikable to me. They're relatable to mm -hmm. me. So I don't know. For some reason, in the middle of doing this, I was like, I had this massive light bulb just proving what we've been saying all along. This is why it's not a criteria that should at all be relevant because right. it's just all about what you relate to or identify with or find interesting in a character. Or at the very least, it has to just be a starting point. I right. didn't like so-and-so because... You know, I want someone who's what, you know, I want a character who's ambitious and she wasn't at all ambitious. So it ha it can be maybe a starting point, but understand because I think I did that with Bridgerton and I was like, God, I don't like Daphne. And then I spent a lot of time thinking about why and what that actually meant, because I think it is pretty a normal reaction to think, oh, I don't like that or I don't. You know, yes. It's just a, a human thing. But mm -hmm. It absolutely cannot be the ending point. Like, what does it mean when you don't like someone? Yes. What are you reacting mm -hmm. to? I, I am clearly drawn or maybe most comfortable with mm -hmm. the unlikable woman, again, but not unlikable to me, but unlikable mm -hmm. character who's motivated by ambition, money, success, doing her job well. Miranda Priestly, like I said early on, is a perfect example of that. I understand that she is maybe the extreme she's supposed to be you know so demanding and so unreasonable but you know what i mean she puts her job at the magazine before anything else she even when she you know betrays nigel and she justifies her actions to andy and says like she basically had to manipulate the situation to prevent jacqueline from taking her job you know she says that there's no one who can do what i do mm -hmm. and i'm like Exactly. She knows that she is the best at her job. And then when Andrea, I mean, when Andy starts questioning whether she'd want that or not, you know, she's like, don't be ridiculous, Andrea. Everybody wants this. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to be us because she can't fathom right. that anyone wouldn't want to be the best at this job and get the accolades she gets and the respect she gets. Cause, and I, I, I don't know. I love that. I don't, that yeah. didn't, 
you know, again, she's probably a little extreme. Right. Uh, but, but she's also you know. someone people loved to hate, right? Like she was yes. a character that is maybe unlikable in the real world, but as a villain against mm-hmm. Andy, she was, you, you love to hate her even if you, but you had to respect her. I mean, to your exactly. point, yeah. even if you didn't want to be her. What I thought is interesting, and I have a lot of examples of this, is Andy, and and Miranda sees it in Andy and calls it out, and I think Andy must realize it too, which is why she goes in a different direction, but they're not so different. Mm-hmm. Andy is a lot of the things that you just described, but yet I mm-hmm. found her entirely unlikable through the whole story. And part of it was because, unlike Miranda, she was really struggling to get there. And she w- didn't want to give up things that she was giving up. And then she was giving them up and then blaming those things for yes. kind of being in the way. And I didn't like her mindset, which was very different from where Miranda was. Now, maybe Miranda was right. that way when she was getting there. But also, Andy's ambition was pretty blind. She didn't actually want to be the top assistant to Miranda Priestley. She, but she had a lot of ambition. And she she took this job because she thought she was going to write herself a check to to go on to what she wanted to go on to. So that is ambitious. But she ended up sacrificing all the wrong things. And yes. And while I can relate to those things in general, I did not like watching her journey. I was much more on Miranda's side. Yes, absolutely. Marla Grayson, too, though. I mean, we talked about Rosamund Pike and I Care a Lot. I mean, that's another example, I think, of just a woman in this instance who just wanted to be, as she said, fucking rich, mm-hmm. right? And she makes no bones about it. There was a. Another speech that she's saying, I can be bought off, you know, and and she says, I want to be very fucking rich. And my bet is that $10 million, that's not such a big deal for you. But for me, that's a start. That's enough to be able to use money as a weapon, like a bludgeon, the way rich people do. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. And that's, she was single-minded in, in her ambition and in her desire to be rich. And I, I thought... It was completely refreshing to see. You didn't get like any real soft side to her Mm -hmm. in it, right? And I, I thought I loved that. It didn't. Again, maybe just it is somewhat relatable. I mean, again, a little bit of an extreme. Yeah, but um, I would have liked to know more about why. I mean, I did love that, and I loved that she wanted to be rich. It wasn't that she wanted to be really good, and it definitely wasn't that she wanted to save the world. She wanted to be rich, and I like that. I was perfectly comfortable with and happy with that as her goal. But and we get a little taste of it in the in the speech in the beginning. She's like, "I was once like you," so we know she, something had happened to her yeah. that that made her turn from someone who's being taken from to yeah. someone who takes. But I wanted to know more. Like, I don't... A little bit. I agree with you. Like, there was that one line, like, I've been poor, like, it doesn't agree with me or whatever. So there's definitely... And again, not because we need to explain away her desire to be rich, but because it adds a dimension. It would be... It would just add another layer to why she's doing what she's doing. And and then I think that just makes it a more interesting character. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't want her to not want to be rich. I just want to know a little bit more about the struggle that made her who she is. 
because people want to be rich for lots of different reasons. So, yeah. you know, a little bit yeah. more about that. But anyway, so yeah, ambition is absolutely something that I gravitate towards and don't ever think of as unlikable in any way. And this started for me at a very, very young age. It was the first time I saw Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the old version with Gene Wilder in it. And yeah. Veruca Salt was someone who I just idolized. She wanted what she wanted. She wanted the whole world, frankly. <laughs> I mean, I want it now. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just loved her. And the funny thing is, that Violet is also pretty, she's ambitious, but it's not, it's so limited to me. It's an ambition that feels very small. She's like, she's the best gum chewer. She holds the world record. That's great and all, but I I much prefer Violet's flavor. And they're both brats and there's no doubt about it. I mean, everyone at that factory is except for Charlie, which is the whole point of the, the movie, but the flavor of Brett for Violet, I could not stomach. I did not like her. I had just yeah. imagined that not a one single bad thing had ever happened to her in her life. And although this is not at all part of the movie, I just imagined that Veruca had something harder to overcome. And she was like, I now deserve everything because <laughs> I got through it. And that's me creating a backstory. But it's hard to unpack why I can't stand Violet and love Veruca. I can't believe as a kid that you oh, really yeah. identified with her. Yeah. You know what I mean? It seems very evolved of you is my point. I, I mean, I, was, I didn't have these conscious thoughts. I didn't think of anything other than I just loved her. I loved, yeah, I oh, loved that's her I mean. attitude yeah. and I loved mm -hmm. everything about her. She's the OG for you. For me, she yeah, is. the unlikable. Yeah. And I think what I've decided is I really love a woman who's in control, even when she's out of control. Because another one that came to me was Cassie from The Flight Attendant. I really loved Cassie. I could not stand Rachel from The Girl on the Train. But I was shocked at the similarities between the two. They both right. have deep damage, both at the hands uh -huh. of a man. They're both alcoholics who, even in this particular story, are really deep in their addiction. These are not people coming out or people falling in. They're both deep in it. And they're both focused on trying to solve a crime. So I feel like there's some agency there in this story. They are both really actively trying to figure out a crime. And this right. crime happens to be one they may or not may or may or may not be implicated in, the but they can't remember right. because they were so blacked out. Very similar, yet I adored Cassie and rooted for her at every turn, and I could not stomach Rachel. That's right. Yeah. So what have you concluded? I think I conclude that it comes down to control. Even when Cassie was out of control, she was constantly taking control of her life. She had fight in her. And Rachel always, she seemed to be like almost fall at the edge of falling off the rope every single time. She was kind of stumbling more than she was strategizing or figuring anything out that's yeah. my thought but I, it's not clear because they're much more similar than I expected and they are maybe I it's also the humor because Cassie was pretty funny yeah Cassie was very funny and I guess Cassie 
maybe because she, she wasn't always a mess. I, I feel like Rachel yeah. was pretty much intoxicated the entire movie. And yeah, well, Cassie right? was too. She Cassie kind of was. was. Yeah. She definitely she was. She was. She constantly had mini bottles of vodka with her. Constantly. No, it's true. It's true. Control seems to be something. And, right. and it's not limited to really super tight, like buttoned up control, maybe the way Miranda Priestley was. Because it can be control even in a really messy and chaotic situation the way Cassie is. I think as long as the person is exhibiting even one more step than agency, because Rachel really is, she's, she's exerting her agency by figuring out this crime, what has happened to this girl that she saw on the train. And it, it, it has to feel one at least half step farther than that, that she's got control over whatever she's trying to get control over. But I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. It is interesting. Yeah. So more themes. Yeah. I have love. Somehow I'm back to love on the unlikable female protagonist episode. Uh, I love it. Okay. But wait, I guess I have one. I have one more to insert before we go to love. I found this out about myself today as I was preparing for this episode. It's kind of a little strange, but I think I like a villain who is motivated out of feeling like a victim. Amy Dunn, for sure. She feels wronged and betrayed by Nick. And she's also feeling betrayed in a way that touches on the way her parents used her. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so it it feels like not just Nick's betrayal, because not everyone needs to go absolutely psychotic, berserk if their husband cheats on them. But she had to because of her whole backstory with her parents and amazing Amy and the way they just used every single thing in her life to their benefit. And that was how it felt to Nick. He had used her. And when it worked for him, it was great. And she was loved. And when it didn't, she was discarded. And so that's Mm -hmm. how you feel like, okay, this woman is going to fly off the handle right now, not just because her husband cheated on her, but because of her whole life story has been leading to this one moment it just speaks to an idea that when you're obsessed with power and I think this goes for men and women these are people who have spent time either a lot of time or a really important impactful time feeling powerless and I think that's just a natural normal reaction and I and I I like that I like watching those stories do you think Ani Finelli falls into that as a victim? That but she never then... became a villain to me. That was the problem. I and I said oh, this in our episode. She was never right. bad, quote unquote, bad enough. She was mean, but she was not evil. Revenge, though. Yeah, but it was not the driving force the whole time. She was very reluctant to do the whole documentary. Got it sort it. of unfolded okay. as all the trauma unfolded for herself, and maybe that's just because the way it was split with the backstory and how. Right. The backstory she was still trying as many high school people do bend over backwards to be part of a group you want to be a part of and I could I understood right. that but it didn't feel to me the same venge driven story right right okay oh boy well we started I, I think talking the other day we were just throwing around some ideas and we mentioned something borrowed by Emily Giffen mm-hmm. and the Rachel character as you know, there's a unlikable situ- woman uh, who is 
stealing ultimately her best friend's fiance. I think it's a couple of things. I think at the time it came out that that wasn't really as much of a thing. Right. The unlikable female protagonist. Right. Also, it's couched in a rom-com with a pink cover. Mm-hmm. And it really is. I mean, the book oh, yeah. is, yeah. I mean, but yeah, the premise, well, I even remember at the time, like you go to, or, you know, you go to explain what it's about and people are like, wait, what? Yeah. I mean, that's, fuck, that's fucked up, right? Right. right. Now, give Emily some credit, right, that she was able to, I think, make it a story where you are sort of rooting for Rachel despite the circumstances. And some of that is because she made Darcy cheat and maybe Darcy isn't so likable either. But yeah, I mean, this made me start thinking, I mean, this is a woman who did quote unquote bad things because she was motivated by love. And I started looking back at it, though, and, and some interesting quotes that I didn't remember. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a line that says, life's not black and white, which Emily does love to explore the gray. It says, sometimes the ends justify the means, which I started thinking, I, for my own damage here, that I think I'm okay in these love stories if the if I believe the end justifies the means. If I, I root for what I believe to be the couple that I think should be together or the love story that I think should prevail. And then I don't really care what is, what the person's doing to get there. And that's why there's a line in this. And I also can see why I would like this because Rachel was sort of the quote unquote good girl who had followed the rules, right? right? And so it's, she said, I run my hands along my glass, marveling at how much has changed in such a short time, how much I have changed. I was a parent pleaser, a dutiful friend. I made safe, careful choices and hoped that things would fall into place for me. Then I fell in love with Dex and still viewed it as something happening to me. I hoped that he would make things right or that fate would intervene. But I've learned that you make your own happiness, that part of going for what you want means losing something else. And when the stakes are high, the losses can be that much greater. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I then, you know, she's she starts hooking up with Dex, you know, who is her best friend's fiance. And there's a you you fall for it, if you will, or if you're me, I should say you root for it because you believe or I believed that she was in love with him and he was really in love with her. And there's a line where she says, I feel freer with Dex than I ever did when I was single. I feel more myself with him than without maybe true love does that and then there's another line i love him wholly and unconditionally and without reservation i love him enough to sacrifice a friendship i love him enough to accept my own happiness and use it in turn to make him happy back i also was rooting for rachel in something borrowed yeah that's not the best example i think because i think a lot of people were because of darcy yeah but anyway but 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 what you said is not until the end and that is you're right it's you don't know about any of that until to until the very end um, of the book but Emily Giffen does set it up right from the start and I was going to read the first just the very first paragraph I was in the fifth grade the first time I thought about turning 30 my best friend Darcy and I came across a perpetual calendar in the back of the phone book where you could look up any date in the future and by using this little grid determine what day of the week it would be So we located our birthdays in the following year. Mine 
in May and hers in September. I got a Wednesday, a school night. She got a Friday. A small victory, but typical. Darcy was always the lucky one. It's so subtle, but it sets up that there's just always been this rivalry or competition. Yeah. And and not in a an aggressive way, but just in a quiet fundamental way and that maybe it's set up from when she was 10 years old that that Rachel just believed Darcy was always going to win and don't even bother when it comes to her so don't even fight for Dex don't even do that because that's not you that's Darcy not you yep and And like there's other line too like what Darcy goes always goes for what she wants whereas Rachel always sort of sits back and she says waits for something to happen to her right yeah, yeah. So, so, there is so that's that why difference. I was definitely on Rachel's side. I thought about this more generally that, okay, I wanted Daisy Jones to be with Billy mm-hmm. in Daisy Jones and the Six mm-hmm. and for him not to, and for him to choose her over Camilla. And we talked a lot on that episode about whether they were really in love and we disagreed and whether Billy was really in love with her. We You believed Daisy was in love with him, but was Billy really in love with her? And even though by the end, I told I thought you made a lot of good points and I did come around to Camilla being the heart of the story. When I was reading that book the first time, I was rooting for Daisy Jones yeah. and Billy. Yeah. Right? I was rooting for Jake to choose Mallory in 28 Summers and to leave Ursula. Honestly, I wanted Fleabag, right? To, right. To have the priest. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I, yeah. What the hell does it say about me? I'm rooting for true love wins like what is up with this okay i am not somebody who believes in true love always wins and and i have different feelings from fleabag it's why i preferred fleabag season one to season two because i thought season i thought she was more unlikable in season two than she was in season one season one she was more along the lines of what i was talking about earlier she was feeling like a victim and was lashing out she was really hurt and in grief season two i thought she should have known better and i didn't like that it was just like oh well anything in the pursuit of love is okay mm-hmm. i just don't the ends does not justify the means. I. but it's complicated Sorry. i mean we talked about forces of nature too and how you're rooting for I, I, the home wrecker, essentially, with Sandra yeah. Bullock and Ben Affleck, but when he chooses the original, you know, the the more tyranny, the the love interest yeah. he's engaged to, in that movie, it made sense to me because they made it make sense. He was just like, "I love you," and all this other stuff is me just being an asshole right now and confused and unsure. And I love you, and I've always loved you, and this is it, and we can make these choices together so in that way I'm like true love always wins so it's hard to I don't know it's hard to to reduce either one of our points of view but you do seem to be more consistent with no matter the situation no matter the circumstances or the context I just want the two people who you've shown me to be in love or falling in love to be in love period yes period and and I'm admitting that like even it kind of as a Catholic, I mean, honestly, the the feedback one, I'm like, jeez, Kate. I mean, you want him to leave the priesthood? I mean, that's a little. Yeah. You want you want her to hook up with a priest, which actually I think is why Phoebe Waller-Bridge did it. I mean, yes. it is. Think about that. I mean, that is pretty blasphemous on so many levels. He's not just like forbidden because like he's married right. to someone else. No, which, she. Which apparently lots of us can get past right. like, in stories, but. 
he is a priest, you know, yeah. and yet somehow I a know. lot of us a are lot. rooting for that. Most right? people definitely fall right? in your camp of like that. They... So what's with that? We just is that's what I'm wondering from the damage angle. You had me watch. We talked about Anna Karenina, Karenina yeah. and I had not seen that movie with Keira Knightley and. Again, a woman doing unlikable things, but motivated by love. Yeah, I was, I was with her. I, I mean, yeah, the, her actions. You know, I mean, yeah, and and Daphne, interesting. As, as we've discussed. Oh, yep, on Daphne. Bridgerton. Yep, I wanted her to be with the Duke. I had that listed too. I know, yeah. and I'm like, split. even though you made great points, I'm although, split. I'm like half of those people I find to be completely relatable and I root for them. And then the other half I find completely unlikable and unacceptable. Right. There is something very selfish about it. Ooh, like Daphne. Like, right. They, oh, wait. So believe- is that the difference? Maybe if you think they're being selfish. And I felt like you thought that about Fleabag and you thought that about Daphne, that the men were telling them, I can't do this. Like the priest like I, there were lines I can't remember them but basically like I need to stay in the priesthood so at that point you're like fleabag then you should respect that he is telling you he can't do it and you just keep going because you're in love and the duke was clearly being very specific I I do not want to marry you I'd rather get you know I'd rather right. die than <laughs> marry rather. you that was your point I would rather fucking die, die than, than marry you and she's like yeah, but I'm in love with you. And I'm like, yeah, she's in love with him. Now, I think in both instances, the how I come back on my point is they set it up, though, so that you believe the priest and you believe the Duke do love them or have feelings for them, too. So that's where I get a little tripped up because I see what you're saying, but I'm like, they're saying that. But they clearly love the woman. So Ugh. is she supposed to listen to what he says or should she go by what she feels is happening between them? And I must fall on the side of, oh, whatever, regardless of what he's saying, clearly he was in love. With wow. I just finished saying I like a woman in control, but not with love. Selfish is one way to put it. But it's really for me, it's love should be like an almost automatic response. It should not require any control or rationale like oh well I know he's saying all these things but I know he means something else Mm -hmm. it shouldn't require those things in my mind it should be something bigger than someone and these examples that I don't like are women who take control of the situation in a very human way but but a way that kind of I guess negates for me this idea that love is like from on high or from some mm. something that's bigger than you and that that you can't escape it even if you wanted to these women Daphne Fleabag these women do not believe like oh if I let him go he'll come back to me they don't believe that this is destined right. to be they're just like no you think they're forcing yeah, the issue yeah and it might be accurate but that bothers me. I don't like it. Yeah. Oh, that's. I but I then I could see then what a, you would like it because then you you want the woman in control. You're like, I know what you're saying, yes. silly boy. Mm-hmm. But yes, but it's not true mm-hmm. and it's not real. And I'm certainly not going to give up my dreams just because you've said that and that you do like <laughs> the control of it. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think so. Oh, I think so. Interesting. I mean, I'd like to say. 
oh, it's just because I'm the hopeless romantic. But that's not true because you are too. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely. believe in me. So I know there's more there. Yeah. And that's why I was like, that's why I said we're getting on the couch. You're going to figure this I out. I think because... it's the control. I think it's yeah. the control. And that these women just take control of that. And I'm like, the one area that you cannot control anything is love. And so I don't so want to see Ra- it. So Rachel with Dex, I guess I'm trying to apply that then. It still applies for me in my scenario because to me, her giving up on Dex before when Darcy, because she knew him first and she never went for it, right? So she was all that time avoiding her own destiny. But when she finally gave into this is, this is just what's meant to be. That it's meant to be. Yep. That that's when. And I might lose a friend, but I have to finally go for my own happiness. Yeah. Like it's time for me to step up and. But she also didn't okay. have to do a whole lot, right? They she did. They were in love. She didn't have to. He yeah. never was like. He was like, I don't know what we're doing, and I I don't know what it all means. But but he was never like, no, I can't. Yeah. No, no, so no. I think once once like the sort of light right. bulb went off for exactly him, that she she'd been there all along mm-hmm. as his friend and comes back to love and everything does for me I am definitely a hopeless romantic I think it's just yeah. so funny that we both are but in very different ways yeah and again but I like I yeah, I, I do I like that nuance because it's not something you hear a lot of you're like you just you accept it as one thing just like the unlikable female protagonist you just accept it as one thing somebody I don't like <laughs> And yeah, it's like, exactly. well, what does that Period. mean? And what does exactly. it mean to be a hopeless romantic? And that's interesting. Yeah, look at that. So okay. we are not the only people talking about all this stuff. And our what she said today is a little bit of a melee of other writers, authors, and, and critics who have examined the unlikable female protagonist and what it means to them and and what it means, I think, to what they think about the public at large talking about right. it. So I, my first one was pretty basic, and I used it in The Girl on the Train, but it's from a brilliant writer who now has a book out called White Feminism that is mind-blowing. And she was a former editor of mine, Koa Beck. And she wrote in The Atlantic in 2015 talking about the unlikable female protagonist. She said, These ladies scheme, swear, rage, transgress, deviate from convention, and best of all, they seldom genuinely apologize for it. More than being unlikable, these female characters directly challenge the institutions and practices frequently used to measure a woman's virtue, marriage, motherhood, divorce, and career. These novels allow their protagonists to navigate vulnerability, pain, and disappointment, and all the awful thoughts and behaviors that may arise. And that was just a freedom that women were not granted for a long time in fiction. Mm-hmm. And women might have felt that way, but it was not something to be read about and disseminated widely in, in books and movies and TV shows. I have one from Rosamund Pike, since we've talked so much about her. Of course. And she, she was talking about Marla Grayson, the character, and I care a lot. And she said, she was everything I've wanted to see in a woman on screen. She's allowed to do the things that men have always been allowed to do. Be ruthless, ambitious, strive for exactly what she wants, shamelessly and unambiguously. She has no fear of not being liked. She's out to win. She wants to make money. All the things that have not been considered feminine qualities, she has them in spades. Oh, 
I love her. Yeah. I love her. I, I know. I was like, I got to use she Rosemary. Is, we talk about her so much. I know. She but, is one oh. of those people that could just become, you know, like Molly Ringwald was a John Hughes muse. Like, just, yes. just kept writing movies for her mm-hmm. in mind. Yep. I feel like mm-hmm. Rosamund Pike is a whole slew of people's muse because she just can pull things off. And right. I'm sure part of it is her appearance that she is this beautiful blonde haired woman thin everything anyone objectifies as the perfect woman and yet here she is acting in ways that defy every bit of our conventions and expectations and I think that's a big part oh that's why I love watching her first of all I know and that's why she wanted this role and good for her I'm sure she's going to get more accolades for it too amazing yes i have another one from an author ambra salam and she writes the quirks permitted to fictional women fit between tram lines and span from clumsiness to overprotectedness maybe a dash of ambition anything outside of those tram lines is aberrant repugnant the structures that socialize women prize affability accommodation yieldingness a desire to please And there's a certain kind of moral squeamishness associated with female characters who shrug off expectations. And then she takes it even further in how much more complicated that gets for minority, for either people of color or LGBT. BQ. And she says, to empathize with someone, even an unlikable person, we have to feel connected to their humanity. That's the role of a skilled author and storyteller to create enough vulnerable space in a character so that we we as observers can pour ourselves into their desires. This is part of the reason we actively want Tom Ripley, she's an example earlier, to succeed even while he's scamming his way across Europe. This is also the reason we love Obama for admitting to a cheeky cigarette or praise models for uploading pictures of their acne on Instagram. She says, but women, particularly people of color and LGBTQT women, have historically had a harder fight for their stories to be seen and heard, for their joy and suffering to be considered universal human experiences. But narratives that allow women to be unkempt, frivolous, sullen, are a way of opening up that interior space without having to play the booby-trapped authenticity game. When writers explore these stories, it helps to wear away at the stereotypes and model minority templates that obstruct the glorious and relatable messiness of simply being human. Oh, this is a really good point, though, now that I, Mm. about minority women. I mean, if we're saying the society has trouble tolerating the unlikable female protagonist, absolutely right. Add on top of that, if the unlikable female protagonist is also uh, a minority. And I mean, do we even have examples of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... It's how can there's there's all these stereotypes that black women have fought against for years of being the you know the angry black woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, can they can you then write a character, an angry black woman character without perpetuating the stereotype when really you might want to just be exploring the anger that I'm sure all women have, right. black or white, you know what right. I mean? It, it, Absolutely. It adds another complication. It that, does. And we don't have good examples of that. Yeah. By we meaning pop yeah. culture. You don't want to reinforce this, a stereotype while trying to examine it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think the more messy 
characters we get, the more I like that she said we open up that interior space. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Oh, you have another one? Go. I do. I have either a Jessica Nola or a Gillian Flynn, yet, since we've talked about both of them. Let, let's go with Gillian Flynn, because, come on, we've talked so much about her, and since she is the one that sort of broke ground. So she said, I've grown quite weary of the spunky heroines, brave rape victims, soul-searching fashionistas that stock so many books. I particularly mourn the lack of female villains. Good potent female villains not ill-tempered women who scheme about landing good men in better shoes as if we had nothing more interesting to war over not chilly wasp mothers emotionally distant isn't necessarily evil not soapy vixens merely bitchy doesn't qualify either i'm talking violent wicked women scary women don't tell me you don't know some the point is women have spent so many years girl-powering themselves to the point of almost parodic encouragement. We've left no room to acknowledge our dark side. Dark sides are important. They should be nurtured like nasty black orchids. Oh, oh my God. She is I so... I was like, <laughs> They damn, have to be nurtured cold, like nasty like black nasty orchids. Nasty black orchids, right? Oh, God. Oh. I had never heard and that. And I love, like, don't tell me you don't know some. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. I feel like she's, like, calling people out. Yeah. Like, don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. I miss her. I really miss yeah. her. She needs to be in my she life more. She coming out. What's, come, what's she happening? She does. You know. I know. I, I did go listen to her in conversation with an, another author who she was promoting their book. It was The Echo Wife was the, the mm-hmm. book. But... She said she's working on it. I really, I need to, I need more of her in my life for sure. Yes. With quotes like that, I'm reminded why she is. Yeah. But also this perfectly segues into our takeaway today, which is a question that I had posed to you. And I, I don't know that we agree. The question is, is the unlikable female protagonist quote unquote over? A lot of these books and movies and stories and a lot of the quotes that we've even just talked about now are all from 2011, 2012, 2013. I think the Koa Beck one was from 2015. But that's now, you know, five, six years ago. Is the unlikable female protagonist over? So I said, I thought I didn't think it was over when we, and and I thought I came up with some recent examples and now I'm not going to be able to remember them. Well, we've talked about Cassie on the flight attendant, and that is obviously a recent example. Which of course my gut reaction was, she's so likable. What is unlikable about her? But (laughs) But you see, but it goes back to our point. But you remember my husband. What was his complaint about that show? Yeah. Mm, she's just so not likable. Mm. But I think that was an example. What else did I use? Oh, The Push, the book that we're we're going to interview. Yeah, we didn't even uh, get We didn't even get We didn't even get to that. But the mother as an unlikable thing. And maybe we'll talk was, about it more in The Push because there are quite a few books that have done this in in more recent. I think The Bad Mother is maybe what the unlikable female protagonist has morphed into helen phillips the need Mm -hmm. and now the push Mm -hmm. there was another one i had in there and that's interesting to me because i think if you if you take the premise that society has a problem with unlikable females because 
we think of females as sort of the mothers, the nurturing, like we don't want to see them do bad things to, to make the mother then the unlikable person doing the bad things. I feel like that's really hitting at that nerve, but yeah, well, so I don't know. That's my answer. My answer is I do think the unlikable female protagonist is over, but I think she's over because she has evolved so much. Mm-hmm. She has evolved into not just one thing. She is not simply a portrait of the very stereotypical patriarchal ideas of what a woman should be. They have much more layering. They have contradictions. They have bad times. We see these good people in bad circumstances. So I think she's evolved a lot. I think the heyday is certainly over. The heyday that that Gone Girl ushered in, that heyday is over. But the good news is I don't think she's gone from our lives. I think she just exists in our lives in so many more variations with so much more nuance that we don't even need this category because it's right well that yeah. okay yeah that I see I thought you meant over and like we don't really see women that qualify as that anymore right. because we've gone to maybe like you said like pop rom com so you know good girls whatever you don't mean that that you're just saying it's it's evolved and the and I think the discussion has evolved yeah, yeah I think no I think the the creators have evolved I think women have yeah, much yeah. more of a a voice and a seat at the table and as we all know women are not one thing and so they're yeah. they're getting to show all of those sides but I do think that is the next iteration is the mother I think the mother is still relatively untouched in popular fiction as bad mom is really bad you know what i mean that (laughs) seems oh no you've made a mother you know i don't know yeah and what's interesting to me is i think there's been quote-unquote bad moms for some period of time but mommy dearest maybe they were just like a, a cautionary tale and it was like this was exactly who you don't want to be. And that's so horrible. And maybe even, well, my mom was terrible, but she wasn't that. So I guess right. I'm doing okay. But there is so much more nuance in what it means to be a bad mother. Does a bad mother leave her children to not inflict whatever mm-hmm. she's going through on them? Does a bad mother stay and inflict her damage and trauma onto her children? what is a bad mother and there is much more of a nuance there but it's a whole other compartment of interiority and again the way I think Gone Girl was an exaggerated version of maybe how we all feel about long-term relationships I think books like The Push and The Need are exaggerated versions of all things we've all felt which is this baby is trying to fucking kill me (laughs) Right. Like, right. Right. I think we've all felt like our very identity is threatened. As soon as we become mothers, we have to put on a new hat that we have no idea how to wear, no idea what it looks good with. And is it, you know, is it a page boy cap or is it a wide brim, hat, you know, a Kentucky Derby yeah. type hat? What is this hat? How do I wear it? How do I want to wear it? How am I being told to wear it? In all of those stories, no matter where you get to, the child is is still the antagonist. And it's the one making you question something you've known for a long time. And especially as women have children older in, uh, in life when they have established careers and they have established identities and wait longer in their marriages. They have established marriages 
it shook me to my core to become a mother. Yeah, and yeah, I love yeah. books that are exploring this. And I love that this is why fiction can do what what nonfiction and memoir can't do. Exaggerate it to the point that if you can see past all the crazy plot stuff that's happening and, and understand the fundamental truths, because it's hard. There are some beautiful memoirs out there about mothers who, you know, I think one is called Mother, Mothers and Madness. And there's some beautiful stories but then you can just say to yourself, well, I'm not bipolar or I'm not, you know, that's yes. not my story. Mm-hmm. But when you yeah. put, fictionalize it and you make these crazy plot, then my kids never tried to kill me in reality, but I have felt like my child is trying uh, to kill me, <laughs> you yeah. know, like yes. sleep deprivation, or so, yeah. Yeah, sleep deprivation yes. or, you know, nursing issues. Like th- your body is truly being attacked and... Mm-hmm. I I just love to see that next frontier of you yeah. know, of women's I, stories and th- yeah, things that are taboo and breaking them down with right. with nuance. Yeah, I I think that that's a great point, and that probably is sort of the next frontier. I mean, I will say in terms of is this unlikable female protagonist over? You know, if you look at the nominees right the other night for. Uh, the Golden Globes and and they're getting Oscar buzz. I mean, to have uh, I Care a Lot and Promising Young Woman, Mm. two movies with amazing female characters who are certainly unlikable and doing, you know, socially unacceptable things is pretty encouraging. Yeah, though, not just, me, I mean, those, those are, those are women yeah, doing yeah. truly illegal, truly immoral illegal things. Yeah. This isn't, exactly. this isn't the nuance I was just talking about. This is clear, bright yes, line. Truly. Nope. And they are winning awards and being nominated for awards. And I think that's, I, personally, I'm like, that's amazing. I mean, these are, these are the movies out there right now. Yeah. Which it's pretty good. That's progress. So I think we agree. We just may define it differently, whether it's over or not. But I think, yeah. I mean, I say yes, but you're saying no, but we're still saying the same thing, which is that yeah, it's exactly. evolved to such a high standard and has become so almost acceptable that that these people are winning awards and, pe- mm-hmm. and having commercial success as well. I, I right. think what I love about the fact that it might be all over is, as you were mentioning earlier that I had brought up before, that we are, the pendulum is swinging back to maybe rom-coms being really popular and in high demand. But even those rom-coms don't look like the Mm -hmm. previous iteration. I said it in The Girl on the Train. I was like, these rom, the, the chiclet was always, the premise always involved a good girl who was in a bad circumstance and had gotten herself into some trouble through almost no fault of her own. And now we have women who are complicated and layered and taking control and not, not taking control and, you know, ignoring their shadow sides like we saw with Harper in The Happiest Season. They are all over the spectrum of yeah. these are not simply good girls in bad situations. There may be some of those, but... These are so evolved. And so I'm happy to say they're over because we're going to see a resurgence of rom-coms because that means we're going to bring all of the that complication, all of that you know depth of character into those love stories too because unlikable yeah. female protagonists deserve love too. Yes, <laughs> you know? they do. I think so. I love to see right. them in love stories. Well, 
Well, that was fun. Uh, Very fun. We learned more about ourselves yet again, Kate. Yes. See, look at that. We pretend we started this podcast because society needed training, like like (laughs) Leslie Headland said, right? (laughs) Leslie Headland said, we as society lack the training to tolerate unlikable women. Meanwhile, it's been constant education education for us. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I love it. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen.com or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.